Hello and welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. I'm you, I'm one of your hosts, uh, Jason Nichols. I'm here with my friend Vince Colonnades. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of things going on. There's diaper gate, there's all kinds of things going on. <laughs> uh just joking for all our, all of our trump followers uh just jokes just interesting things going on <laughs> in the news but uh not the least of which are things going on in our actual government so i'm gonna let yeah. Vince get into that vince wait i'm sorry okay you've already got me off on on a different tangent what is diaper gate is this the thing about trump wearing his pants backwards over the weekend yeah. is that what this is about yeah you know uh he wore he allegedly wore his pants backwards and snopes <laughs> actually went and said that's not true his pants were on correctly is um, this not is this not the perfect trump scandal by the way like oh, it's amazing i was thinking <laughs> i was thinking this weekend as i saw that it was like, first of all who puts their pants on backwards like there's there's like how could anybody do that like if you that's were the awesome. most if you were the most hammered you've ever been in your entire life is there any chance you would put your suit pants on backwards? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, no, like, and- like you would have to button it behind you. You'd have to zip up the fly behind your body. Like even drunk Jason Nichols or Vince Colonnais would never be at a point where we're like, oh, the pants are, <laughs> are going on the wrong way. Like you I mean, do it the it, right it, way. When you look at the picture, it really <laughs> doesn't look like there's a fly there. So it's like, and, and it does almost, you know, people are joking that he has a fupa. And, and again, this is just funny to me, just like when Eric Swalwell allegedly farted on TV. Like, these are just funny things. But, you know, I think it is everybody amusing. needs to lighten up and, and actually take it as, as what it was. You know why it's my favorite Trump scandal like of, of recent history? First of all, it's the latest one. But secondly, it's um, what it led to is like like Trump's critics, liberals broadly staring at his crotch for hours on end trying to assess whether or not his pants brought backwards i'm like yeah, yeah. this is this is the most unbelievable thing ever and the fact that snopes had to come out and be like you look we reviewed the tape and we <laughs> we checked the photos and i'm yeah, sorry to report it's hilarious and can you imagine being the guy who got that assignment from your editor he walks <laughs> over and says yeah so there's a whole thing about trump having his pants on backwards he may have on a pamper yes. uh, you <laughs> don't know what's going on can, can you look into it and, and review the tape? And It's also and- stupid. Hey, but you know something's interesting about that speech this weekend? Um, I don't know if you saw this, but in that speech, and he was speaking to, I believe, North Carolina Republicans. Yeah. Um, and during it, he gave an account of what it was like to stand at Dover Air Force Base and receive the bodies of fallen soldiers. Did you hear this at all? No. No, okay. I didn't watch it. <laughs> it is. I only saw that clip. Yeah, I saw was, clips, but I, I didn't watch the whole thing. But I didn't that see that per, clip. So in this clip, that was it was one of the most um, empathetic and, dare I say, even introspective statements I've ever heard Donald Trump give. Um, when he was talking about the bodies arriving, first of all, he described that he was speaking to families before the bodies arrived. And he was, like, really struck by the fact that they seemed totally composed. Like, there was, like, they didn't seem, like meaningfully distraught they seem like they kind of had it together and he marveled at like wow these guys like the the families seem they were just talking about how great their kid was and uh, in their exchanges you know speaking to the president of the united states they maintained some sort of strong composure and so trump would go and speak to the generals and be like they seem like like they're totally with it like they've like they don't seem like they've lost it and the generals are like just wait just wait until the caskets arrive 
And so Trump goes on to explain that when they finally un, like drop the loading door for these big planes at Dover, you know, which normally carry military equipment, but instead are carrying the bodies of the fallen this time. And all these soldiers uh, are carrying the caskets out, you know, as like pallbearers, as you would, um, carrying them from the plane out onto the tarmac. He said, he explained the human emotion that was going on among the family members that were there. He said it was like screams like you've never heard. He described seeing one mother sprint towards the casket and then leap on top of it and cling to it and that the soldiers never broke pace and never tried to stop her. They literally carried the casket with the mother on top of it as they kept going. And I was, first of all, it's a story I'd never heard. I, I, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that most people don't have access to. It's a very private thing. It's families. The president of the United States might be there, other military senior officers. He didn't give any specific details about the people in question. It wasn't like that. It was just like basically a way I thought it was actually a genuinely good way to sort of bring the horrors of that human experience to people. And it was touching. I don't know. It was just, and it was almost like, I kind of wish he had given that speech uh, a week ago for Memorial day. Um, so like to bring it home to people, but if you haven't seen it and I'm not just talking about you specifically, Jason Nichols, but like anybody else who's watching now or listening to us, just go and check it out. It was like an unbelievable thing. And, um, and I thought, you know, a really, a really nice message to convey. Yeah, I, I, I really want to see that because Trump is not known for being an empath at all. Um, and, you know, with some of the things that he said, you know, about the military, about POWs, about people who have been captured, about, uh, you know, certain veterans, about all of those things, you know, it, it is kind of shocking. But I'm, I'm happy that he said that. Um, and the fact that it shows you that the loss that those families experienced yeah. is bigger than being in the pre presence of the president of the United States. Because sure. you would think in most cases, it's like, all right, I'll do this at, you know, our private family funeral, but yes. not necessarily because I've seen things like that when people have lost, you know, young people and lost children. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why, I, you know, I personally don't like open caskets, you know, because, you know, then you have to watch the casket close. And that's right. always a really, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, it's, it, it's the finality of it. It's yeah, really. I know the times I've seen it. It's not that I, you know, that I jumped up and went bonkers or anything, but it certainly was like, whew, wow, that just hit me. That's a final thing that I will yeah. never see that person again. You know, and this was a rough, you know, just personally. And, and I don't want to go into, you know, because it ain't about me. But, you know, I saw a lot of loss in, in 2020. Um, right. A lot of loss. Um, and, you know, I understand how someone can can do that. But the fact that that emotion for a mother is so strong that she gets tunnel vision. All she sees is her son or daughter and yeah. is not thinking about, well, the president is here. The generals are here. All these important people are here. I have to, you know, just quietly sob that their emotion overtakes them for their loved one. And they love uh that person and and they get tunnel vision shows you something about a, a mother's love but a, you know a family member's love generally but certainly you know a mother's love for their son or son or daughter um, yeah and so you know I, i'm sure that was 
you know, a powerful story. And whether you like Donald Trump or you despise Donald Trump, you know, um, I think it'd probably be worth many of us listening to that and get and getting, you know, getting what we can out of it. Um, yeah, like I mean, like look, for instance, Joe Biden. You 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 know by now, I I'm not pleased at all with Joe Biden and his administration. I do think that there is something touching about um, his constant. He he ends every speech with "God bless our troops," and, and in particular, it's not just the "God bless America" line. And he always keeps. Um, I think he always keeps a note in his pocket with all the war dead. Uh, the, the updated numbers of the war dead constantly. It's always on him. I think that's a, a touching gesture. And the point to all of this is, it's just a reminder that there's like so, some things that are just like, like that will ground you, will actually make you remember like what actually matters. And it's that stuff that is a right. slap in the face to, I, I think, uh, especially a political culture that's super decadent and super uh, trivial and gets caught in these like dumb debates over things that are totally meaningless sometimes. And uh, as a result, it's like, wait a second, there's like actual people out there that are fighting either to defend our democracy or at the behest of our leadership inside of missions that they claim will defend our democracy. Regardless, there are people who are willing to give up their life in order to protect this project. And um, it's just a, uh, it's, it's an important reminder. So when it, when it happens, I think it's worth calling out. So with all of that said, I do want to get to the news of the day, though, because, yeah. you know, what you and I, I think, wanted to talk about is uh, immigration. And in particular, the, the fact that we've got this ongoing raging border crisis, the Biden administration, uh, from where I'm sitting, has seemed to not know how to respond to it. They, um, and, you know, I think there are some on the right who think, who think ultimately they don't actually care uh, whether or not um, it's abated because they think their long-term fortunes will be improved by massive immigration into the United States, illegal or otherwise. But Kamala Harris is heading to Central America. She went to Central America this weekend. She met with the Guatemalan president yesterday. She's set to meet with AMLO, the Mexican president, today. And the goal of all of this, supposedly, is to bring about long-term change, potentially, uh, in the flow of migration into the United States by speaking with those countries in Central America and then sending billions of dollars in their direction with the expectation that if you improve their lives in those countries, then they will have no reason to migrate to the United States. Um, I just don't think this works, Jason Nichols. I don't think that uh, I don't think that we've ever seen any evidence that dumping cash into Central America is going to mitigate the migration flow. So there, there, there's a lot of of, of what you said there. I just briefly want to say that. This idea that Democrats want more immigrants, uh, legal or otherwise, in order to change their political fortunes for the future. Um, first of all, uh, Democrats control all three houses or all three elements of government. Um, yes. You know, in, the, in you know, legislative and executive, uh, not including judicial. Um, so I think their fortunes at the moment are very good. And then you look at so it's, you know, whether immigrants affected that, I, I think is, is kind of, you know, it's kind of absurd. The other question I have for Republicans who say that is, yeah. why is it that you don't think you can challenge for brown immigrants' votes? You know, what, like if they come in and they become American citizens, why don't you think you can challenge for their votes? Yeah. I mean, as a matter of fact, Republicans were trying to spike the football because they won some mayor, you know, election in, in McAllen, Texas. And they're like, yep. see, 
85% Latino, and he won that election. And I, and to be honest, I know people from deep South Texas, and that totally makes sense to me. <laughs> like, I'm not shocked at all. Right. You know, some really conservative uh, Mexican Americans in deep South Texas. So winning McAllen, like I was like, so what's the big deal? Um, if you well, know it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened since 1997. Yeah, I, I, I get that. But what I'm, what I am saying is that there are some very deeply conservative Joe Manchin type Democrats in, right. in that region. Uh, and so I don't think that it, that really, and when it comes to values, uh, you know, when we're talking about many Latino groups who are, who are deeply Catholic, um, and have values that are very conservative, like many African-Americans as well. Um, yeah. it doesn't shock me that they would, uh, you know, win that kind of an election. So my question is on a national scale for the people, and I, and I've wondered this, you know, even talking to Tucker. Like, mm -hmm. why is it that you think or, or you are conceding the fact that you can't win those elections with, you know, brown people from Central America and from Mexico right. coming into our country? That that says something about, more about you than it says about the Democrats. In my well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I would counter. I mean, one way to think about this, I think, is to invert what you just said, because. I think that the the belief among the right when it comes to what the left is up to on this is that the left sort of nakedly believes that everybody crossing the border is going to end up becoming Democratic voters in the long term. Um, but the data show among Hispanic voters broadly, and not just Cubans and not just Mexicans, that there has been a lot of movement towards Republicans, especially sure. in the last election cycle. And I just wonder, like, like, what do you think Democrats would do if it became really clear that all of the Central American migration, if granted amnesty, would become Republican voters, or if it was a majority of the Central American migration in the United States that were destined to become Republican voters if amnestied by the United States? Don't you get the impression that like Democrats would throw the wall up like right away? Like, you know, uh, maybe we got to uh, get control of the border. You know, this this border crisis is too out of control for us. We need to we need to shut down the flow. No, I, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think that would happen, but um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it would. Yeah, no, I, I don't. But uh, Democrats historically and Republicans are right when they say this historically have have been people who wanted to uh, control immigration. You got some, you know, uh, Democratic fossils like like Dianne Feinstein, who were really anti-immigration in the 1990s. So I, I think that they're, you know, um, yeah. Well, you don't have to look. You don't have to look that yeah. far back. I mean, Bernie Sanders, I guess I guess Bernie Sanders qualifies as a fossil. But Bernie Sanders in 2016 was voicing this opinion. He said illegal immigration is bad for American workers and we need to stop it. And he did that, I believe, in an interview with Ezra Klein. And he got ripped by the left for taking that position. Klein couldn't believe he said it out loud. He was like, what? You're, not, you're against illegal immigration? It's like, yes, I'm for I'm for like having clear borders and I'm having for I'm for American workers. Like, I don't want to see their bargaining power diminished by foreign nationals. And uh, I have to and look the at the context for that, because I've seen lots of Bernie Sanders interviews where he has not stated it in anywhere close to those terms. I'm you telling know, you, um, I'm telling you, I'm, I, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not saying you're 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 not saying it's true. I just want to see the full context. Yeah, the interview. I, I believe that it that it happened. He he changed his position, though, after that. 
So, no. so if you've seen a lot of interviews of Bernie where he's speaking like, hey, like I'm for illegal immigration, we got to take care of this, we got to have amnesty. That's uh, nobody's, all- hold on, let, let me just, 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 just kind of contextualize one thing. Okay, go for it. Nobody's for so-called illegal immigration or undocumented migration. You know what I mean? Everybody wants to curb it. That is why Kamala Harris is in Central America. She wants to, con- to curb it. What she is, I think the, the debate, you know, it's kind of like when people say there are people who are for abortion. Nobody's for abortion. You know what I mean? Like that, I, I think that that is just kind of an, you know, a, a, a purposeful obfuscation of what people actually want. But the um, debate, like for us, in, in that debate is like literally about should abortions be legal or not? That's, I mean, that is the debate. Yeah, but nobody is for people getting abortions. Nobody wants, hey, we need more abortions in society. I don't think there's anybody who wants that. But that's another for, day. That's that's a debate for Okay, day. all right. I was just saying, you except know? for like some like Sierra Club, like old school environmentalists, the Malthusians who think we need to like have fewer people on the planet. Yeah, that's, that's weird stuff. But, uh, you know, I think of, of most rational people, nobody wants to see Right. You know, more abortions. Nobody wants to see uh, more undocumented people take a dangerous trip and come into the country. What uh, what they would like is for more opportunities for legal migration. That's what I think uh, is, is the debate. There are some people who say, no, you know, uh, America, closed borders, old school, um, you know, isolationist kind of views. And then there are some people who say immigrants actually enrich our society. Immigrants actually uh, raise wages. There are lots of, uh, of myths that are put out there about what immigrants do to, to workers and, and all those kinds of things. Yeah, but those, but th- th- it's a, uh, it's an abuse of statistics to lump legal immigration in with illegal immigration and then say immigrants add, you know, add value to the economy. Well, that's I'm, nobody's contesting the role that legal immigrants play in that. They are contesting the role that illegal immigrants play in that. And you know what's really unhealthy about this debate is we have no idea how many illegals are in the United States. So the number that's like constantly trotted out is 11 million. But it's been like that for two decades now, Jason. It's like nobody's like ever. Like, how can anyone in the government look at us with a straight face and be like, yeah, there are 11 million illegals in the United States? I mean, it's just outrageous. Yeah, no, I I will admit that, you know, there's an estimate as far as how many undocumented people there are in the country. Um, What I would say is also, you need to go down and talk to the farmers in Alabama and in Georgia. When they got rid of and they got really strict on undocumented immigration, what it did to their farms. So a, a lot of them are like, whoa, we don't have people to work our farms. We don't have people to do things. We've got, you know, crops that are rotting out here because mm-hmm. Americans won't do this work for these wages because it's incredibly labor intensive. Yes. You know, and, and it's, again, it's stoop labor is, is what they call it. Stoop labor. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it's, it, they, they've tried this. They tried it in North Carolina. They've tried it in many different rural states where they get tough on undocumented so, immigration. And it actually has an adverse effect on the economy. But so, that's the yeah. that's the kind of the point. That's kind of the point, though, is like, why do we so why do we support the status quo? Why do we have a status quo system that underpays foreign labor 
by way of an like an insane immigration system where we're not keeping track of people and and then exploits that labor and then doesn't actually pay the prevailing community wages to Americans who would do that job if the wages actually paid like reasonable levels right so like we've we've created this like underclass in the United States and then we're told that that's the humanitarian approach it, it's not these people are being exploited they're coming across for the border sure. they're being exploited for their labor and then American citizens are left out because they're because they won't take jobs that don't pay what they should. Like you should be able to at least make minimum wage doing these jobs. And but I, it's just thing. a horrific system. Oh, you, you know, it's really interesting because I've been reading this new book that I'm reading. Um, and I'm about halfway through it, but it's called it's by a guy named Ezra Katz something. Katz okay. Nelson. And it's called uh, When Affirmative Action Was White. And one of the things that's really interesting about it is it talks a lot about the New Deal. And it talks about how, you know, there was a split between Southern Democrats and Northern Democrats. And how, of course, Southern Democrats from those 17 states basically controlled the entire Senate, you know, um, and how they were able to do that. And with the passage of the New Deal, what they got put into all of the legislation on labor uh, was not having these labor protections apply to farm workers and domestic mm -hmm. servants. And part of that was, of course, because farm workers and domestic servants were black people, you know, in in their uh, in their states, and they didn't want that kind of economic parity. Um, yeah. Fast forward to today, where Farm workers, again, I mean, there is this kind of uh, difficult situation where you have independent farms, small, you know, farmers who sell their crops, who are a family business, who need labor. Um, can they afford American wages for the, for the kind of work that, you know, you would do on a farm for the hours you would do it out in the intense hot sun? You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to mow my lawn today. And I'm going to be like, oh, man, this is so hard. <laughs> and right. these people are picking watermelons and mm -hmm. all these kinds of things and doing really labor intensive work that a independent farmer would not be able to pay them the kind of wages that Americans would require in order to do that kind. Of so thing. here's so here's the solution to that. For, and, I mean, and, there's a there's a couple. But one that's kind of obvious to me is we just need a coherent legal immigration system Absolutely. that actually welcomes welcomes like foreign guest workers if necessary like if you yes. like literally can't handle american uh uh wages like okay let's make a carve out in the law that you get to pay a lesser wage or something but the reality is like what we've allowed to happen is we've allowed like an incoherent system to be the status quo that there's no political courage whatsoever to address it that everyone seems to be basically fine with illegal immigration going on nonstop and and then every couple of years, we have this big debate about, OK, how many should we amnesty? And then that's it. I mean, it's like it, it's it, how is that doing a service to us? How is it doing a service to Central America, to Mexico? It's like not it doesn't it so doesn't like, take care of any interest just, except for the moneyed interests who benefit from a broken system. For sure. I, I listen. This is where we agree 100 percent. We need to fix our immigration system. I think the ways in which we fix it. You know, which which I think the most important thing is that we're we're saying the same thing and that we value the same thing. The ways in which we fix it is the difference. To me, saying put up a wall 
in order to stop undocumented immigration. It's like saying to stop murder and crime, we take away guns. That that's that's literally the same logic. I mean, we technically do put up we do put up walls for for crime. It's called prison. <laughs> I mean, it's like, but they're they're to, not to stop. prison is not a deterrent. But at any at any rate, <laughs> um, we're talking about deterring crime to try to stop crime. And uh-huh. putting up a wall again is like when you have a leak putting up a putting down a bucket. It's you know it might catch some of it, but not a whole lot because most people come through ports of entry. Even the undocumented people, they come through legal ports of entry. They're not you know marching. You know you're not getting thousands and thousands of people marching through the desert. They're you know through some weird un ungated part. Uh, they get smuggled by coyotes. You know across legal areas in trucks and and things of that nature what i'm saying is people don't want to leave their homes that's fundamental people don't want to leave their homes you don't want to leave your home i don't want to leave my home yeah because we Uh, live in america i mean i think right but but people don't if you talk to those people and i i've actually literally had those conversations yeah you know as you know you know my wife and i are both fluent in spanish uh and we talk a lot of times we both of us uh, have known people who are undocumented um, and, and I'll say she's she's unafraid. You know, our, my, my sister-in-law is, un, is undocumented, um, is a dreamer, uh, came to the country when she was three years old, didn't even know she was undocumented until she got to mm-hmm. high school. Um, and what I'm saying is that with the exception of her, because she's an American, you know what I mean? She's like as American as apple pie. When you have other people who come to this country for economic reasons uh, or to escape, you know, crime and violence, they would rather be in their country. When you talk to them, they're like, "My family's in Guatemala. My my grandmother's buried in Guatemala. My you know my daughter is in Guatemala." Yeah, they don't want to actually leave where they are from. I know we think America, the streets are paved with gold and everybody wants to be here, but that's not the case. People want to be where their families are and where their extended families are. That's kind of true. I think I would, I would say that's kind of true. It's not true in all cases. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of migration to the United States from very stable countries and people want to come to the United States because they see it's a a place for great opportunity. So like Japanese migration to the United States, which continues you know, Japan's a, is, a, is a wealthy, healthy country, uh, a lot of obviously a lot of family pride and people still immigrate to the United States because they see an opportunity for a better future for themselves and for their families. And, and you know, so, I mean, it's probably a mixed bag, just like anything. But like my my concern here is, you know, we, we started this conversation on Kamala Harris and what she's up to right now this weekend. Yeah. And first of all, the White House is already downplaying expectations. Like, don't expect to see results anytime soon. This is a long-term venture. And, and if anything, it'll change far down the road, which means real, realistically that, you know, Kamala Harris isn't going to be able to walk away with this and suggest that, you know, by the end of this first term and say, hey, look, here's some measurable results from my work. Because, you know, Joe Biden couldn't do that either when Joe Biden had this same task. And in fact, there was this New York Times report this weekend. I don't know if you ran into it or not, but the New York Times reported on all this foreign aid to Central America through the years and how it's just been a complete failure. And in fact, that migration has not been slowed by all the foreign aid we've given over many years to Central America. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is in, internal corruption. So governments that we give money to 
Um, the money doesn't make it to the people who need it in the form that they need it. Two, American contractors are often corrupt. So when American contractors are getting this money in order to it, you know, advance some cause inside of Central America, it's typically really to only line their own politics pockets. They pay the executives exorbitant sums from American taxpayers, and then they create products that don't actually help. So, for instance, the New York Times reported like there's like people who created apps to help farmers. The, the farmers don't even have smartphones. Like, what would the the app doesn't is is useless because the people in question don't have smartphones. And then there's like all these like trainings that these American contractors will try and give to Central American farmers. And then the farmers like are uh, quoted in the New York Times this weekend are all saying like, this is useless to me. I don't need another training session. I know how to grow coffee. That is not the issue. Like, like this is, that's not helpful at all. It's just been a gigantic waste. And now what I'm, we're looking at the Biden administration essentially attempting to do the same thing, and not essentially, literally doing the same thing and expecting different results. And at some point we have to just, you know, tap out of, I think, a very, a failed strategy for how to stem the migration. And the other side is, and I know I've said a lot, and I know you want to respond to it. The other side is to remember that deterrence do have an effect and do work. So when Trump created the remain in Mexico policy for asylum claims, and then got Mexico to assist on its southern border under duress because he told Mexico, look, I'm, I could impose some trade tariffs on you if you don't cooperate. He triangulated that effort. The, the impact was Mexico gets control of its own southern border and the remain in Mexico policy serves as a deterrent for people to come to the United States and make that journey at all. That did slow down migration. That did slow it down. So we don't have to get rid of every Trump policy just because Trump was president. Um, maybe keep the ones that work and think, okay, how can we build from there? But that's not what this administration is doing. So the, the remain in Mexico policy. Um, so there, there are a couple things with that. Number one, uh, one of the things that slowed down migration over the past, uh, you know, year and a half has been the thing that slowed all of us down. <laughs> Yes. And that has been COVID-19. That, that's been one of the things. The other thing, and I just want to quickly go back to, I haven't, I haven't checked it. I wanted to check it on my phone, but I didn't get a chance. Sure. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many people are coming to our country from Japan. Um, I do remember, you know, President Trump saying, why are we bringing in people from certain countries? Why don't we bring them in from Norway? Because people from Norway don't really want to be in the United States. They're good in Norway. And I think one of the things, when you look at the people who are trying to sneak in, who are trying to do whatever they can and, and taking really risky journeys into getting into the United States and remaining in the United States, it's usually people from desperate countries. There are people from Haiti, Cuba, um, excuse me, from you know certain parts of Mexico and certainly from the Northern Triangle of Central America. Right. That's those are the people who are who are like, yo, this is life and death. I have to get into the United States. But but oh, okay. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead. I would no, I was just gonna make the point though that we extend refugee status to people who are being persecuted for a number of categories. But when it comes to like the generosity of the United States, that's one category where we are generous. But being poor and having crime in your neighborhood is not a rationale for refugee status. Sure. And so 
if that was the standard, if like America was like, okay, look, if you're poor, if you're, if you're desperately poor, you're welcome in the United States. Think about how much of the world's population would qualify for that. I mean, like at some, we have to have some like semblance of like, okay, here are the rules for immigrating to the United States. And additionally, you can't have mass migration too quickly in a country where you have to have a cultural identity that binds us all together, right? Like you can't have like all of Central America come to the United States at the same time. I mean, that would be deeply destabilizing to oh, our country. I, that's where I disagree there. I mean, so what is what is the the culture and the cultural what? tie that binds Americans? If anything, part of the, the tie that binds Americans is the fact that many of us come from many different places uh, and we have many different backgrounds. And unlike any other country in the world, uh, the fact that we actually can identify with, with some of the homes of our ancestors and yeah. still be American. Uh, yeah. So, but, you know, as far as what you said about refugee status, you're 100% correct. You cannot uh, come and claim like say political asylum because there's violent crime where, where you are, you know what I mean? Or, or right. in your city, you know, you have to be politically persecuted, not just there's gang violence in my city or there are drugs being sold in my town. So I'm going to come to the United States. Um, so you're 100% you're correct there. And Central America has tried many different ways to deal with, with violent crime and with drugs. One of them, you know, in El Salvador, I believe, they have something called, I believe it's, uh, the approach is called la mano dura, which means like the firm hand, strong hand which mm -hmm. is basically police go buck wild and, and are really going after the transnational gangs, you know, MS-13, right. Mara Salvatrucha, and um, 18th Street. Now that, which by the way, both of those gangs started in the United States and were, <laughs> were brought to Central America. So we can't, we blame Central America for bringing it here when in fact it started here but they were started by Salvadorans in Los sure. Angeles, right? And then they yes. came back to, to El Salvador. Sure, right. But it started on, on U.S. soil is, is all I'm saying. And part of it was because of them being uh, exploited and, and harmed. And they did what Italian-Americans did, what Irish-Americans did, what African-Americans did. And that's click up and, you know, defend themselves. And then they became, they, you know, went bonkers and went nuts. Um, but in areas that are economically suffering, like Guatemala, so for example, Kamala Harris is going to visit, uh, I believe his name is, is Kiamate, uh, is, is how his name is pronounced, the, the, the president of Guatemala. If I have that wrong, forgive me. But I, I would pronounce it from, from how I saw it read, I, I would say Kiamate. Yeah, way better than I would have done it. So yeah, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> so he's the president of, of Guatemala. And sure. the thing is, of course, Guatemala has had two major hurricanes that have destroyed uh, a lot of the, the land there. They, you know, and, and the Guatemalans and the U.S. both agree that climate change has affected a lot of the agriculture that we're talking about. And the soil, a lot of the soil is, is unfarmable now. So that causes hunger and, you know, food shortages. Uh, you have, you know, a lot of, you know, um, food instability in that area. 
And what is that a, a ripe ground for? Another economic opportunity to come into those communities, which is illegal drugs, which is narcotics and narco traffickers. So narco traffickers have come into those areas and you know the Guatemalan government is not really set up uh, on its own to deal with that kind of crisis when they've got these other crises on top of that, mm -hmm. which has created this void for narco traffickers and other, uh, you know, other crime and yeah. violence and things like so maybe, that. So maybe, I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't really know what the status is of our intelligence sharing agreements with countries like that, but that could be a useful place where the United States and its intelligence apparatus helps because uh, narcotics in particular are extremely damaging to the United States, very damaging. In fact, Absolutely. this past year, we lost 84,000 people, the CDC thinks, to drug overdoses. Uh, and that's outrageous, most of which were opioids. Most of those were fentanyl. And we've, had, we've seen an explosion in fentanyl crossing our border already in 2021. So far, we've interdicted more fentanyl this year than we did for the entirety of 2020, um, which is a sign that a lot more death is on the way to the United States, courtesy of how porous our border is right now with regards to both people and drugs. And so as a result, like, we should just be honest. My, my only point is like, we've got to figure it out, like for real. And we, you know, this weekend, you mentioned the Guatemalan president and you announced and you pronounced his name so beautifully. I don't want to take that away from you. <laughs> I hope I um, pronounced it right. I'm honest. And, and he was on CBS this weekend on Face the Nation and he's being interviewed and he was asked, you know, uh, about this immigration wave and why his citizens are leaving and coming to the United States. And he said that it was Joe Biden taking office, the change in administration and the change of posture. Yeah, I heard that. He's lying. That, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a lie. He's he lying about that? He, he doesn't want to take responsibility and say, hey, part of this is what's going on in Guatemala. It, you know, so of course he's going to say, well, the reason that people are leaving is because you're incentivizing them in the United States. Instead of saying, no, we can't control things in Guatemala. We can't control you know, narco trafficking, we can't control, you know, we, we don't have a handle on what's going on in terms of our, our hurricanes and our okay. natural disasters. We can't control the fact that people in rural parts of our country are eating. So you're right. You're right. Control. You're right that he has you're right that he has an incentive to pass the buck on whatever failures he may be responsible for. Totally. Yeah. But and, and some of it he's not responsible for. It's just, well, he didn't cause it, but there's he, he doesn't have an answer for it. But I, I, I would submit, though, that there's two things to look at, at least in my and mind. Lying is lying was was overboard. I should not have said lying. So I, I, pro, uh, uh, President Hiamate, if you are watching, <laughs> I apologize. I would love to come visit your country. Yes. And I did not mean to call you a liar. Uh, I just think that I understand why you were saying why you what you said. No, uh, yeah. So, so thank you for that retraction. And, and again, your pronunciation of his name, I think will earn some brownie points, but here's <laughs> the thing. I, I, you remember Biden's election in November. And when it's clear that Joe Biden has won the election, we see the immigration numbers go up meaningfully. Like the numbers start going up immediately of border crossers. And then after that, there have been numerous immigrants asked on the border what changed about their attitude and why they're coming now. And they've said over and over, I'm not talking to like, I'm talking to mainstream news outlets. They've been saying, Joe Biden's president. That's what's changed. And that's why I'm here. And um, finally, remember, 
the White House was asked about this in the press briefing earlier this year. Actually, tr- Biden himself was asked about this in a press briefing, um, I believe, by Yamish Alcindor, who had said something to the effect of, remember the exchange about like whether or not Joe Biden's a good guy and why immigrant uh, illegals are coming to the United States now. That that that's all been a centerpiece of this. I mean, there's no there, I don't think that there's, there's much room for debate on the subject that with Joe Biden in office, the belief is your chances of both making it across the border and then staying here have gone up dramatically. So, so why wouldn't that be a magnet? So so I, I, I agree with you on on one end. Um, I do agree with you that, you know, first of all, indisputable that some of those people on the border, uh, again, you know, as well as anybody that man on the street interviews can say whatever, you know, you'll find one guy to say, to say anything. But um, but that some people did say it is the change of administration. Uh, and, and I do think that some of those uh, migrants also, and, and it was a deterrent. I think cruelty is a deterrent. So when people heard about family separation and that, you know, there are 500 to 1,000 kids who, you know, were still struggling to find their parents and find their loved ones because they're somewhere in Central America and we separated them, you know, I think that was a deterrent. Was it a humane deterrent? Was it something that was consistent with what we do here in the United States and with our constitution? That's another question. But did it deter people? And when people found out that guy's no longer in charge, the guy who was going to rip my kids out of my arms is no longer in charge, did that make them want to make that trip or, or make, embolden them to say, hey, this person at least is going to treat me a little more humanely if I get caught? Uh, I think that's probably, you know, fair. I, I think that's probably true. And there were a lot of people in Homeland Security who were Trump supporters who said that that policy was what turned them off. That policy is what made them leave the department. Um, right. So, so that, that policy in particular, I mean, I think people forget where that came from. That was a product of zero tolerance for illegal immigration. So once you establish a zero tolerance policy, you say, we're going to follow the letter of the law entirely for everyone who crosses the border. And one of the, one of the elements of the law was the Flores settlement, which made it so that there was only a certain amount of time that you could actually hold um, children in custody. So the end result was that families got separated because they were following the law to the letter of the law. And that was considered um, an atrocity. How dare you do that? And the argument that the Trump administration was coming back with is, well, if you want to change it, you have to change the law because right now we are literally just following every element of the law as it exists. And you're right. There were people within the Trump administration, DHS, who felt, um, felt terrible about the amount of public pressure they were getting over this. It looked like they were doing something horrible. They felt terrible about the public pressure or did they feel terrible? It's Washington. Where they couldn't it's, find their parents. They, the people who are in the system now clearly don't care about that anymore either because think about this, man. Like how many children are now living, way more actually, are, have, been, have been living in detention centers under the Biden administration? Like a ton. And like it's not receiving any coverage. It did at the beginning of the administration. I will submit that because the press was like, so it was like so obviously like, wait a second, the comparisons here are too much. We can't like avoid this. But the Biden administration has been holding countless children in isolation inside of these detention centers uh, since the beginning of the administration. And like 
like it's just that that story has just completely disappeared like we don't like nobody the press at large is really not covering it anymore yes absolutely so i'm sorry i'm getting close to the mic i wanted to make sure that my mic is picking up i think i turned it down which no no problem anyway um i hope my mic is picking all this up because i hear you this was a really good conversation but here's the thing um i think that when we're talking about the Biden administration, again, I think we are missing, and, and there was a spike, but again, a lot of that was backlog from COVID-19. You know what I mean? Was people who, were, who weren't coming, people who were stopped, you know, at, at the Mexican border and all of those kinds of things. You know, now it seemed like, oh my God, there's this huge rush because Joe Biden is president when it was really just backlog from, uh, a lot of it was just backlog from COVID-19 and that it was, you know, you weren't gonna have these record, num- record numbers forever, um, but it was going to spike up for, for a while. And I think one of the things that the Biden administration did wrong was not expect that to happen, you know what I mean? And be prepared for that. So I agree with you there. I think the other thing about, um, you know, Biden, and you know there are children certainly in detention. Uh, there is, uh, you know, a, a crisis in terms of what do we do with unaccompanied minors? Unaccompanied minors have always been kept, you know, in in detention. You remember during the the Obama administration, Obama yes. was heavily criticized by people to the left of him, including me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, for that very same thing. I think there were certain things that were misunderstood both with the Biden administration and the Trump administration. Like you saw pictures and it was, you know, kids in cages. But in reality, they didn't want to put them in a dorm because you want to be able to see in to make sure that no children are being exploited or harmed or anything like that. So it needed to be kind of in an open space. The other thing is people are like, they're given, um, you know, what is it? Aluminum foil to cover themselves. Those are heat blankets. Anybody who knows uh, who's been camping or anything, you know, knows those are actually. Uh, they call them space blankets. Yeah, they're, they're meant to actually uh, keep your heat in and mm-hmm. to keep you warmer um, and to ward off hi- hypothermia. So that is now, could they have given them a cot? Yes. <laughs> you know, I think they could have done a little better. But there were certain things that were misunderstood about those photos, both with the Biden administration, uh, excuse me, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. But unaccompanied minors has always been an issue. And one of the web places that I think we agree and we can end this on is that our administration, um, one of these days, has to actually come up with a fix, come up with uh, real immigration uh, changes and policy initiatives, and really overhaul our system to make it fair, make it humane, make it equitable, and make it so that people don't necessarily from certain countries want to come and be exploited on that long trip and risk some of the, the things that happen on that trip from Central America to the United States. And I think that's why Kamala Harris is here. And well, let me know why. Okay. Well, just because we have to run, but let me ask yeah. you one exit question. If Kamala Harris were to approach you today and hand you a cookie with her face on it, would you eat it? Uh, a cookie with her face on. Did you see this over the weekend? 
I didn't, but oh, okay. You know, all right. So Kamala, I'm sorry. I thought you may have seen it. Kamala Harris, when they took off, first of all, they tried to take off for Guatemala. They had some air trouble and they had to come back and land back at Andrews Air Force Base. And when they finally actually got underway on their second trip, the reporters who were on the plane, Kamala Harris at one point walked back to all of them carrying a tray of cookies that were all in the shape of her face and started handing them out to the reporters, uh, which is, which is, um, uh, <laughs> one of the, I, I'm sorry, I, I hate to say it, but like one of the most narcissistic things I've ever heard. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this much. Would I eat it? What kind of cookie is it? Don't That's give right. Me an oatmeal cookie. That's right. Or, or, actually, I don't mind oatmeal cookies that much. Oatmeal is good. Sugar cookies. It doesn't matter. If it's a yeah. cookie, I'm probably yeah, I'm probably I mean, eating it. There are some cookies that I that I'm like, eh, I can do without this. <laughs> but depending on what kind of cookie it is, I yeah. will eat it. Uh, you know, I've seen you know Trump flags with Rambo on them and yeah, know, all those kinds right. of things. And uh, if we're going to say a cookie is narcissistic, I think we, we can go all yeah. whole. I think we could say politicians are narcissistic. I don't think um, that's true. I think you're right about that. I, I, because I can't imagine a world in which somebody gave me a tray of cookies that were all in the shape of my own face. And then they were like, go hand these out to everybody. I'm like, what? <laughs> Why the hell would I hand out cookies that look like? Who would do that? And I'd probably you, just be happy that some that I got a cookie if I were on the press yeah. personally. You know, no, that's you true. Know, like, can I have two? But you're right. Uh, I, I think I think the summary here is politicians are narcissists. I think you're you're totally right about that. Absolutely. J and one thing, even though our name is all over the show and it's Vince and Jason, we are not narcissistic, and we are happy that you are here with us. You may even get a cookie for joining us <laughs> here on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Please like and subscribe. You know, wherever you see us, uh, in, wherever there are podcasts, definitely give us a five star rating. Give us a five-star rating and then comment, you know, F you, we hate you guys, but just give us those five <laughs> stars. We love it. Definitely uh, subscribe so you can see whenever we're putting up new episodes, we're on three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We have those episodes up for you. Uh, Vince, it's always amazing to be here. Thanks, Jason. You. Can't wait. This is like the highlight of my week. I can't oh, wait. Oh, you're a good man. Uh, to see you in about, what, 48 hours. Awesome. All right, my brother.